right, so before we really jump into this sermon, um, I, again, I just want to say how proud I am of our graduates, but I cannot really put into words how much I hate this day. <laughs> I hate it, all right? It's like Judah getting vegetables, you know? I don't like it, all right? You know, Anthony and Morgan and, and Alyssa has been helping out with the band. You know, Morgan and Anthony are two of my fixtures in the youth ministry. I both are in our youth worship band. Uh, they're both very active in the church. You know, Morgan's in the adult band as well. Anthony helps out with the tech. And I cannot wait to see what God has in store for them. But I dread today because it feels like a goodbye in a really real way. All right, see, our church does a lot of things right. They do. We, we do a lot of things right. We have an amazing children's ministry. Not to toot our, my own horn, but we have an amazing youth ministry. All right, and I think we have a great band. We have a great choir. We have a lot of great things, unless you're college and career age. All right, we are severely lacking when it comes to the 20-somethings. We are in dire need of a college and career ministry here at the First Baptist Church Ocean Way. There is nothing here to keep a young person that just graduates college here. We do a fantastic job of loving and supporting them when they're in the youth, but as soon as they come out of the youth, it's almost like we show them the door and tell them to come back when they're married with a kid or two. All right, this has to change. We have to do better. All right, we have to do something here to keep them rooted in the church so they can continue to pursue that relationship with Jesus. We need someone to step up, all right? We need someone willing to run a college and career ministry. We just need someone willing. And believe you me, if he can use me, he can use one of you. And if you don't feel that calling, please pray and support this ministry. But you got to understand that God often calls the unqualified to do the work only he can accomplish through them. Amen. I mean, consider the well-known Bible character, or biblical characters and patriarchs of the Christian faith. You know, Joseph, you know, he was the youngest son in a large family. He is completely unqualified for any level of leadership, according to his brothers. They were proven wrong. You know, Joseph in the gospel is a meager carpenter who had no ability to fully understand the miracle going on in his future wife, Mary. Moses led the people of Israel despite never feeling qualified. He asked God, who am I? David was the youngest son in a family where his job was to tend the sheep, but God called him to be the king of a great nation. Abraham was a godly man who rarely trusted God to do what God had promised. Not one of these men was ever qualified in the eyes of men when God called them to work he had prepared. They may not have been qualified, but they were willing. That is what we are in dire need of. We need someone willing to step up and run a college and career ministry. We have been talking about it for two years now, and we have made virtually no progress. Please, please, please pray and see if God is calling you to run this type of ministry. And if you're willing, reach out to Pastor Micah or me, and let's set the groundwork and get this going. Because, you know, let's not let our college-age kids just walk out the door and into the world without some sort of fight. We're just willingly letting them walk out. We got to do better. All right, now that, that's all I got to say about that. All right, now that I got us all in a good mood. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into the word today. All right, if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, we're going to be in the book of Philippians this morning. 
So go ahead and make your way over there, and we'll get to that in just a minute. We'll be in Philippians 1. All right, the verses that we're going to be diving into this morning are verses 27 through 30. And before we jump into those, we need to know a little bit about the book of Philippians, a little background before we discuss the verses. Now, Paul's writings make up the majority of what we now call the New Testament. But before his conversion, you know, he's a bad dude. All right, he's a Roman and a Pharisee, and to a Christian Jew, that's like a double combination of bad. The first time we see Paul mentioned in the Bible, he is the role of a prosecutor, or persecutor, excuse me. He is persecuting a Christian by the name of Stephen. Again, this is the first time we see Paul in the Bible, and he is persecuting Christians. Stephen ends up getting stoned to death, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of Paul while they were stoning him. And then in the uh, next few chapters in Acts 9, he comes face to face with Jesus on the Damascus Road, and his whole life has changed. You know, he goes on to become the most influential disciple of Jesus. Now, this letter, along with uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, are what is known as the prison epistles, as they are the four letters Paul wrote while imprisoned. The big theme from Paul's letter is encouragement. Paul is writing to the church of Philippi to encourage them to live out their lives as citizens of heaven. And that it will be evident that they are citizens of heaven by the way they serve God and how they serve one another. This letter is pretty cool considering the church of Philippi was the first church Paul founded in Europe and his first convert was Lydia. Uh, this woman had a pretty, our women in general in the church of Philippi had a pretty prominent role uh, in the church there. Paul very much wanted to encourage the church of Philippi and to continue to partner together in the gospel and walk in worthiness of the gospel. Um, he wants to encourage them, but he's imprisoned in Rome at the time, so this letter is literally the only way he can accomplish that. Think about that for a minute. Paul's in jail, and he is wanting to encourage others outside of jail. Seems a little backwards to me. I mean, I've never been to jail, but I imagine my one jail call wouldn't be to Blair to encourage her. I'd probably be crying hysterically, asking her for bail money to get me out. But anyways, the four verses we are focusing on this morning again is Philippians 1, 27 through 30. If you are able and willing, I would ask that we stand as we read God's word. And it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you for your words. Lord, we know your words are sweeter than honey and worth more than gold. Your word tells us that it is beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Lord, let this time make much of you. Let us not focus on distractions outside of this time, but to use this time to let our hearts and minds focus on you and you alone. Thank you for how you love us, Lord. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So we need to understand that the Christian life is not a playground, if we haven't figured that out already. It's not all rainbows and sunshine. In all reality, it's kind of like a battleground. See, we are sons and daughters in the family, enjoying the fellowship of the gospel. We are servants who are going out and proclaiming the gospel, but we are also soldiers because we are defending the faith of the gospel. See, the faith of the gospel is that body of divine truth that was given to us as a church. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul warned us by saying in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. See, God gave this treasure to Paul, and he committed it to others, like Timothy, whose job was it to commit this deposit to others. Essentially, what I'm getting at is disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, all right? That's one of the parts of the church, the teaching ministry, right? Our Sunday school, or what we call life groups here at the First Baptist Church Ocean Way. So that each new generation of believers will know, appreciate, and use the heritage of faith. But there is an enemy, as we learned about last week. The enemy wants to steal this treasure from God's people. Paul met the enemy in Philippi. If the devil and his demons can steal believers of their faith from God, then he can cripple and destroy the ministry of the gospel. One of the worst sayings in today's culture is, I don't care what you believe, just that you live right. Think about that for a second. How is this accurate? What we believe determines how we act. If we believe wrong, we're going to act wrong. It's that simple. We need to realize that each local church is one generation away from extinction. And that is a hard truth to swallow. When we realize this, it's really no shock that Satan attacks our young people in particular so hard. So he can get away, get them away from the faith. This is why children's ministry, youth ministry, a college and career ministry is so vital. Then the question becomes, how can we fight this enemy? How can a group of believers combat the devil and his demons like this? See, Pastor Micah talked at great lengths about Satan and his demons last week, and he pointed out that we typically fall in two categories when it comes to Satan and his demons. We either ignore them and pretend they don't exist, or we blame them for literally everything, right? There's no in-between. But the reality, though, is there is a spiritual war going on that is a war not of flesh. Remember, Peter took up the sword and Christ rebuked him for it. But we have some really good spiritual weapons. The Word of God and prayer. We also depend upon the Holy Spirit to give us the power we need to overcome Satan. But if we are soldiers, soldiers are part of an army, right? And an army must fight together. This is why Paul sent this letter. He was explaining how we should act as Christian soldiers in his army to detail the things to come. Now all this brings me to my first of three truths. Like any good pastor, you've got to have three, right? All right, my first one is that we live lives reflecting our belief in God. Look at verse 27 again. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. In other words, Paul is teaching them to live consistent with what they believe, what they teach, and what they preach. They are able, or they are to be full of integrity. This applies to us as well. Warren Worsby, Worsby, excuse me, once said, the most important weapon against the enemy is not a stirring sermon or a powerful book. It is the consistent life of believers. How we live matters. And that is the point Paul is trying to get to the church to Philippi to understand. How we live can have an adverse effect on others coming to know Christ. 
if we walk and talk and act like the world, why would an unbeliever want to come to know Jesus? We cannot be a bunch of hypocrites, church. Because I imagine if we are, the world's going to look at me like the way Judah sometimes looks at me. All right, the other day we're playing, Blair and I are playing with Judah. Judah takes a car and hits Blair upside the head with it. Like a genius that I am, I popped his butt and told him not to hit. He looked at me like, really, Dad? All right. I can't blame him. That doesn't make much sense. That wasn't my finest parenting moment. We cannot be the people that says, do as I say, not as I do. Again, we are to behave as citizens of heaven because Paul is saying we are, in fact, citizens of heaven. While we are here on earth, we got to behave like that. All right, Paul goes on to say, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul is calling believers to stand together as one in a battle of faith in the gospel. He wants the church to show unity to the world. In the Gospel of John, Christ tells us in chapter 17, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, and even as we are one. Paul is echoing the words of Christ here and calling us to be not of this world because we are, in fact, not of this world. All right? We are citizens of heaven, and we are also to be united in one like Jesus and the Father are united. You know, I, I get it. Individual Christians and the church in general, we, we're going to fall short of that goal. Um, but even if it's partially realized, we will always be in, there will always be a deep joy, a persuasive witness to the world, and a display of God's glory. And how do we show unity among one another? Well, we love one another. Right? Christ tells us in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we are loving one another, the world is going to know what we are about. Love isn't gossiping, scheming, complaining. Love is being unified. Right? Love is 1 Corinthians 13. Do all those things to one another. That's love. All right. I'm probably going to go ahead and venture to say that we all probably know someone that's no longer involved in church, and it's because of gossiping or scheming or some sort of drama. All right. This is what Paul is warning them against. Paul does this in several different of his letters, just not uh, Philippians. He does it in um, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians. He is telling all these different churches that being divided can cause a church to fail. All right, that the enemy can sneak in if we aren't careful. All right, this, that it doesn't matter if we are Greek or Jew, rich or poor, black or white, we are followers of Jesus. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, the second truth we're going to uh, look at is we live lives reflecting our strength in God. Look at verse 28 for me. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. As the Philippians continue to maintain their courage in the face of their opponents, these opponents will realize that such remarkable strength comes from God and God alone. And anyone who continues to oppose God's people will be marked for destruction. 
When Paul talks about destruction here, he is referring to eternal destruction. So the Philippians have to have courage. Uh, turn to the back of the Bible for me really quickly. Look at Revelation 21.8. And when you get there, and for everyone else, amen too. And it says in verse 8, but as for the cowardly, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Did you catch that? There aren't going to be cowards in heaven. Cowards are in the same category as the faithless, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the idolaters. The people that renounce their faith because of their cowardice will not see the kingdom of heaven. This is why Paul is urging them to be courageous against their opponents. You know, we got three graduates this morning. And they're going to face opponents in the liberal land of academia that do not love Jesus. Some of those professors are going to just do about everything in their power to get them to question their faith in God. They just need to remember 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, and be strong. See, we are not to fear our opponents because, literally, what can our opponents do to us? Because a few verses before uh, our main verses in uh, Philippians 1, 21, Paul tells us to live is Christ and to die is gain. If your opponents kill you, you are in the presence of God. And as long as you are alive on this earth, we should be walking in sanctification with the Lord. Amen. It's a win-win. Christ tells us in Matthew 10, 28, what to fear. These are the words of Jesus. And he says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather... Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is only one who can destroy both soul and body. That's God. This is who we fear. We fear the Lord. And that may sound bad, but it's quite the opposite. All right, we fear the Lord because he is holy. We fear the Lord because we respect and honor who he is. When Isaiah was in the presence of God, his first words ever recorded uh, in the book of Isaiah, out of Isaiah's mouth, where woe is me. That's Isaiah 6, 5. When Isaiah was in the presence of God, Isaiah feared God. When we pray, we should, not have, that, we should have that sense of fear in our prayer life. Nothing bothers me more when someone says, hey, what's up, big guy, when praying to God. No, we are praying to a holy and perfect God. Yes, he wants to hear from you. Yes, he wants to be in relationship with you. Yes, he wants to, you to abide in him so he can abide in you. But we have to recognize who we are speaking with. It's like when you speak to your earthly father, or at least for me. You have to have that almost kind of awe and respect for him. I, I did at least. I always made sure I told my dad, sir, or I always called my dad sir when speaking to him. And, and I still do because, you know, consequences. Um, but we got to recognize also that prayer does two things. It shows the complete sufficiency of God and the complete helplessness of man. It shows that God is not lacking, that he is in need of no thing, that he is infinitely and gloriously wealthy, that he can give to, he can bless, and he can answer without the need 
of help from anyone or anything else. He is sovereign. And it also shows that we are in desperate need of that kind of sufficiency. I'm going to close this section with a quote from John Piper, and it's going to be on the board. And he said, God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie, or as my son Judah calls it, a talkie-talkie, so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and give God the glory of a limitless provider. The one who gives the power gets the glory. Thus, prayer safeguards the supremacy of God in missions while linking us with endless grace for every need. Opponents of the gospel cannot compete with that. Fear God, not the opponents of God. So we live lives that reflect our beliefs, that reflects our strength from God, and the third and final truth is we live lives that openly accept God's gift of suffering. Look, look, these aren't my words. These are you know, the Bible's words. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So troubles are going to come. This verse throws the prosperity gospel right out the window. All right, Paul tells the church of Philippi that trouble is going to come. But notice what he is saying. Suffering and faith are gifts of God because they were granted to you. What in the world kind of gift is that? Have you ever been given a gift you don't want? You didn't ask for this. Suffering has been granted, given to you. Imagine this invitation, if you will. Become a Christian and get a gift. Well, what's the gift? Suffering. All right, who's walking forward now? All right. How in the world are we supposed to see suffering as a gift? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Here's how. Think about what suffering is. Suffering simplified is when two things that we want, two things are things that we love, things that we desire and enjoy, often really good things are taken away from us. People, family, friends. When we lose somebody we love, we suffer. When a spouse no longer loves, we suffer. When we lose money, when we lose a job, we suffer. When we lose all these things we've been talking about, we suffer. Comfort, health, safety, etc. Oftentimes, these good things are taken away from us, sometimes by circumstances in our control, but many times by circumstances out of our control. Regardless of when or how they're taken away from us, we're going to suffer. Suffering becomes a gift when treasuring Christ above all is your goal. When these kinds of things happen, when we face suffering, when that suffering brings us to the foot of the cross, people all the time ask me about Blair being pregnant and with cancer. I always, always, always tell them it is the best thing to ever happen to us because it brought us back to Jesus. See how that is a gift? It's through suffering. And when you suffer and you come back to Jesus, that is when it's completely worth it. You know, J.D. Greer once said, the gospel has done its work in us when we crave God more than we crave everything else in life, more than money, more than romance, family, health, fame. And when seeing his kingdom advance in the lives of others gives us more joy than anything we could own, when we see Jesus as greater than anything the world can offer, 
will gladly let everything else go to possess him. When Jesus comes first in our lives, anything can happen and we can still have joy. Amen. Amen. In Christ's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses suffering and persecution. Um, The Sermon on the Mount was primarily for his disciples. The crowd was kind of his secondary focus. Christ was explaining and teaching his disciples and describing to them the righteous life for which every disciple should aspire to have. In Matthew 5.10, it says uh, Christ is concluding the Beatitudes, and he's pronouncing a blessing on those who suffer persecution because they exhibited the godly characteristics detailed in the Beatitudes. Christ told them, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice what Jesus did there. Jesus assumes that persecution is an inevitable part of the kingdom life. Paul echoed the same sentiments to the church of Philippi. In the book of Acts, we read about the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Talked about him at the beginning of the sermon. When he was being killed, the book of Acts says he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Notice he was standing. That may not sound very significant until we look at all the other verses in the New Testament. There are about 16 New Testament references to Jesus or the Son of Man being at the right hand of God. All right. Uh, Acts 7, 55 and 56 is unique in describing the Son of Man as standing. See, the other four verses describe him simply as at God's right hand, and the remainder describe him as seated at the right hand. When our Lord ascended into heaven, he sat down. But he stood up to uh, to welcome to glory the first Christian martyr. And this is also the last time the title Son of Man is used in the Bible. Stephen was not only tried in similar to fashion to that of Jesus, but he also died with a similar prayer. You know, a heckler once shouted to a street preacher, why didn't God do something for Stephen when they were stoning him? The preacher replied, God did do something for Stephen. He gave him the grace to forgive his murderers and to pray for them. You have to wonder what kind of world we live in when good and godly men like Stephen can be murdered by religious bigots. But we have the same problems in our world today. It was reported on the news that Christian persecution is near genocide levels. But it goes largely ignored in today's mainstream media because it does not fit the narrative. But an alarming 80% of all religious persecution is being done to Christians worldwide. When Paul told the church of Philippi that they would suffer for the gospel, it still rings true today, church. People are suffering. We saw the devastation and utter evil that happened at Sri Lanka. In India where we go and do our missions, Christian persecution has jumped up 57% this year. In one of the incidents this year in Uttar Pradesh, if that sounds good to me, uh, police officers on January 13th disrupted a Sunday worship service and arrested four women and two men, including the person leading worship. At the police station, police officers physically assaulted the woman who fell unconscious. Boiling tea was forcibly thrust in her mouth because the police thought she was finding her unconsciousness. When that did not work, they poured 
two jugs of cold water on her face, not, care, not caring that it was already severely cold due, due to it being winter. This is a reality we are not familiar with. We do not know this level of persecution here in the United States. Our current level of persecution is people boycotting Chick-fil-A and talking bad about us on the internet. We must be diligent in prayer for our brothers and sisters all around the world who are constantly under the threat of persecution. Paul understood this better than anyone else because he went through that persecution. Then Paul goes on to say in Philippians, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. See, Paul is encouraging them because Paul knows. He has gone through suffering. He has suffered for the sake of Christ. According to 2 Corinthians 11, he was whipped 195 times. He was beaten three different times with rods. He was stoned once, and he was shipwrecked three different times. I don't know about you, but I found a different mode of transportation after the first time. You know, if I'm ever on a plane and it goes down and I survive, you can guarantee that's going to be my last plane ride. All right? And I'm the worst flyer as it is. When we went to India last year, if we hit turbulence, I'm gripping the seat as hard as I could. I'd start sweating. I'm doing the Lord's Prayer. And then I'd look over at Pastor Micah and Brother Michael, and they'd be cuddled up next to each other trying to outsnore one another. All right? So, yeah, if, if that ever happens, I'm no longer fine. All right? Miracle on the Hudson or not. All right? But it even got worse for Paul because on one of those shipwrecks, he gets bit by a snake. All right? And those are of the devil. All right? He spends years in prison, and eventually he is going to be martyred in Rome. Man, Paul suffered for the cross. When he was writing this letter to the Philippians and being in prison, he still maintained his joy while experiencing the opposition from hostile unbelievers. James tells us to consider all joy when we experience trials of various kinds. Man, that's tough. When I stub my toe, I don't think how much joy I have while enduring the pain. When I'm stuck in traffic and running late, I'm not saying how wonderful. All right? That's, the kind, that's not the kind of joy he's talking about, though. He is speaking about, uh, he is speaking on uh, spiritual, on enduring, complete joy in the Lord who is forever sovereign over all things, including our trials. Church, I want you to take away from this that we have the opportunity to serve a holy and infinite God that tells us suffering and salvation are both gifts. As tough as that, as, tough as that is, we have to act like it's a gift. Because the point of all this is that we do not depend on ourselves. We are to depend on Christ because it is Christ that strengthens us. <clears throat> you know, when I, when I set out to write this sermon, I wanted to focus on hard truths that are relevant to us all. Not just our three graduates that were in here earlier. But I do worry that these lessons will be even harder for these young folks to realize. As they go into the next stages of life, there will be so many times that they will hear the opposite message. So many temptations, so many distractions, and flat-out false gospels that will try to divert them and misdirect them away from the path God has for them. Uh, my hope and prayer is that our graduates remember what they have learned here and in their homes. I hope they do not doubt God and the means he uses to further their kingdom. My prayer is that they do not believe what the world tells them when it preaches messages like, follow your heart. In fact, my hope and prayer is that we will all live lives that reflect that we truly believe who Jesus Christ is. That we depend on him through every trial and tribulation. It is not our strength that will get us through that. 
but his and his alone. And that when trials come, and, they, and they, they're going to come, but when they come, that we will draw closer to God because that suffering is a gift, and that gift is forming a, close, a closer relationship with Jesus. If any of you are struggling and suffering or wrestling with your beliefs, don't be afraid to reach out to someone. If you aren't living according to the word, man, we're here. We are here for you. Just as Paul urged the Philippians to be united and to help one another, and the graduates especially, you know, we got to be here for them. This is not the end. This is just the start of a new opportunity for them. They may be leaving the nest, but they shouldn't forget where the nest is. We are proud to see the adults they have become, and we are excited to see how they can strengthen this church as adults. You know, every Wednesday and every Sunday, I finish my, my sermon and I release the youth. And before uh, I release them, I have like this catchphrase I always say. It's the same way I ended every Wednesday and Sunday. It feels especially poignant to end today's message with those words. And those words are, I love you and Jesus loves you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that this time was glorifying to you. Lord, give us the strength when suffering comes. And that we do live lives that reflect our hope in you. Father, I pray for our graduates and that you continue to use them and do a work in their lives. But not just the graduates, Lord, but us as well. Use us, Father. Thank you for how you first loved us. Lord, if there is anyone who does not know you, I pray that you open up their hearts and have them come to personally know you. Lord, and if there's anyone that's struggling in the faith, Lord, that they reach out to someone so we can help them through those difficult times. Father, I just thank you again for this time and just how you're using us. We love you above all things, Father. Amen.